Before we get into the conversation, I just want to give a huge shout out to the sponsors of this episode, Newzest. They're a plant-based nutrition company that believes in making good nutrition easy for everyone. Newzest produces a range of nutritional products including its clean, lean protein, a sustainable pea protein powder. Pea protein contains all nine essential amino acids that people need to support muscle health and other bodily functions. The clean lean protein variety from Newzest contains up to 21 grams of protein per serving and is a super convenient way to help you achieve your daily protein requirements. I personally love the chocolate flavor which tastes amazing in a smoothie or some overnight oats. Don't take my word for it though, head to newzest.com forward slash PBN to check out its range and use the discount code PBN20 for 20% off. I certainly think that if you teach a child that you can't mistreat this animal even though it's a different species to you, they're never going to grow up to think they can mistreat another human being just because they have a different skin color. It's not, it's not a case of being equally arbitrary. It's even more arbitrary. If you can bridge that massive gap first, if you can say, listen, this being is utterly unlike you in, in basically every way you can see it. It might have a different number of eyes or a number of legs. It might be a different color. It might have feathers. It might have all kinds of different things about it. You can't mistreat it because it feels. Hello plant friends and welcome to another episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host Robbie Lockie. This week's episode is hosted by Klaus. Klaus is the founder of Plant Based News. Plant Based News has been running for over five and a half years and Klaus and I started the business as a platform in 2017. So if you guys have been following us since then and you're listening, thank you so much for all your support. It has been an incredible ride. This week's episode is with Alex J. O'Connor better known as The Cosmic Skeptic. He is an English YouTuber, podcaster and blog founder who uploads debates and arguments about religion, morality and veganism. His platforms are dedicated to the publication of philosophical ideas and debates. Alex is an international public speaker and debater. He has delivered addresses in multiple conferences such as TED and of course universities. He has also debated ethics, religion and politics with a number of high profile opponents before college audiences on radio talk shows and national television. As an impassioned animal rights advocate and religious critic, Alex's online videos have been viewed more than 30 million times, attracting over 440,000 people to subscribe to his regular content. As always, if you do enjoy this episode, please don't forget to comment, like and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Alex, for doing this interview. I've been following your work on YouTube now for over six months kind of heard you talk about veganism really passionately, but am I correct in saying that the channel was actually set up originally just for philosophy and that's the main kind of focus of the channel? That's right, or at least it was the main focus of the channel. It still is philosophy, to be sure. I mean, I see my vegan work, uh, advocacy, as an extension of doing philosophy. I mean, I'm not one of these people who's out on the streets you know, blocking off lorries and stuff like this. I just kind of sit down and talk to a camera or talk to other people about the ethics of this kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I started just making general philosophy videos about the philosophy of religion, this kind of thing. And people would sometimes ask me what I thought about veganism because it's an ethical topic that comes up. And I was, it was very easy for me to just ignore it. I thought it was wrong in the way that like not giving to charity was wrong. I saw a book on the shelf that said, this is why you should give more to charity. And I think, look, I don't really need to read this book. Like we all get it. I, I know why people need money. I know why poverty is bad. Um, it's the same thing with veganism. It's like, sure, I, I, I get the point, you know, don't kill the animals, whatever. But then I read Animal Liberation by Peter Singer. I actually sat down and read it and I just realized how just catastrophically wrong I'd been. And it's funny because I made a video called A Meat Eater's Case for Veganism in which I 
gave the arguments I'd been considering, saying this is why I think I need to go vegan, please, for the love of God, someone talk me out of it. Please, I really don't want to give up animal products. And uh, nobody managed it. But at the beginning of that video, I said, look, here's a video about veganism, don't worry. This isn't becoming like a vegan advocacy channel or anything like that. I just want to talk about this once. And I'm happy to say that I seem to have been mistaken about that. So speaking of Peter Singer, perhaps the most important animal ethicist of recent memory, I think the main philosophical takeaway from his book, which you should all definitely read by the way, I'll leave a link in the description, is this, that the boundary we've constructed between human beings and other animals is completely arbitrary and almost entirely unjustified. Here's a good quote. In the popular mind, the term animal lumps together beings as different as oysters and chimpanzees while placing a gulf between chimpanzees and humans, although our relationship to those apes is much closer than the oysters. It's a fair point. Why should we consider ourselves so different from other animals and to the extent that they're ours to do with as we please? Here we deal with argument number one in favor of meat eating. Humans are superior to other animals because of X, and therefore we can eat them. Yeah, few problems with that. Firstly, by what metric are we superior? Perhaps the only feasible answer to this is something along the lines of intelligence. Clearly, human beings possess a higher cognitive ability than, say, a chicken. But my question is this, what relevance does that hold to morality? Why should intelligence be the metric by which we measure moral worth? It's arbitrary, it means nothing in itself. Should we morally value human beings with higher intelligence over other humans with lower intelligence? I think not. But even if you do, we surely shouldn't value them to the extent that they should be able to mistreat, kill, and eat the less intelligent humans just because they think they taste nice. Clearly, it's not intelligence alone that can justify this kind of practice. And again, why intelligence? Why not choose some other feature than intelligence, like, say, eyesight? Clearly, eagles have a far superior eyesight to humans but does that give them any higher moral worth? Of course not. It completely took off. I saw that video, it's fantastic. Did it, is it like with your work on YouTube, is it scripted or does it come from the heart and then edited or is it a little bit of both? I think something can come from the heart despite being scripted. I, th I think both can be true at once. Uh, these days I tend to script things that I'm, that I'm writing, but it's very much a case of when I want to say something, I'll sit down in front of a computer and, and type it out almost as I'm saying it just so that it makes the filming process easier. I can, I can read off a, off a script, but the script has been put together just moments before uh, as naturally as possible. I even keep it, when I, when I naturally want to say um, or, or to, to kind of emphasize particular words, I try to retain that. So, you know, the script is there as a, as a basic block of what I'm gonna be talking about, but I tend to um, read as naturally as possible at the same time. But okay, so what about something like emotional intelligence, you might say? Human beings are more sensitive to pain than other animals. They develop complex emotional fears and attachments, not to mention the fact that we care about each other. This distinguishes us from other animals. Other animals don't feel the same level of pain that we do. They don't fear their own death, and they certainly don't care about each other in the same way that we do. This is a second argument in favor of meat-eating. This, if you ask me, doesn't work either. Firstly, on the point of pain, let me bring up something that made my stomach turn when I first thought about it. In fact, of all the small things that came together to make me start thinking about veganism seriously, this may have been the most grotesque to me. Think about the fact that, as we've already said, an eagle has a much stronger eyesight than humans do. 
Likewise, dogs are much more sensitive to smell than we are, such that we can't even imagine what it must be like to experience smell as vividly and acutely as they do. Does it not seem reasonable that, given that other animals are more sense-driven creatures than we are, their capacity to feel pain actually far exceeds our own, just as their capacities for eyesight or smell do? It seems rational to think that this may well be the case. I said a moment ago that intelligence is an arbitrary metric by which to judge moral worth. The ability to feel pain, however, is not. It's a matter of fact, definitionally in fact, that pain infringes on well-being. It's reasonable to consider well-being the goal of morality, even if it's just subjectively so. And so if you're going to make the argument that the possession of some superior quality makes one species superior to another, then it's quite possibly the animals that end up on your plate who have a higher claim to moral worth than you do, because the only possible quality that has any relevance here is the ability to feel pain, and they may well feel it more acutely than we do. You mentioned Peter Singer earlier. Who are your other inspirations and people that have changed your mind or inspired you in, in relation to you know, veganism and this moral imperative? Well, uh, Peter Singer was the first person to have that effect. That's not to say that he's now the, the person I would kind of go running to as, as the basis of my philosophical views about veganism, but he was a, he was a wonderful um, starting point. The most basic question that you can think about with regard to animals is what should the moral status of animals be? What is it now? I think we all know that essentially animals are things. Uh, legally we own animals, they're property. The, uh, the farmer owns the animals uh, he or she raises. The, uh, the laboratory, the corporation running the laboratory owns the animals that they're using to test on. The fur farmer owns those animals and they don't really have rights of their own. They don't have a moral status that says it's wrong to lock them up in small cages. It's wrong to raise them by whatever method will produce their flesh or their eggs or their milk most cheaply for humans to consume or to perform painful experiments on them or to slaughter them for their fur. They don't have that moral status. And so the first question is, is that wrong? And I believe it is wrong. I think we're guilty of speciesism, uh, which is the analogy at the species level of racism at the race level and sexism at the level of relations between uh, men and women. And just as we are trying to move past those long-lasting traditional prejudices against some races and against women, so it's time for us to move past the prejudice against beings who are not members of the species Homo sapiens and to say, if they can feel, if their lives can go well or badly, then we ought not to be ignoring those interests. I also read um, all of the kind of go-to vegan authors. I've read Tom Reagan for a, a deontological approach to the problem rather than uh, Singer's utilitarianism. I read Gary Francioni. I watched a bunch of speeches on YouTube. I saw the famous Gary Orofsky speech. I've been listening to people like Earthling Ed and Joey Carbstrong. People are now proud to call friends and colleagues. It was all kind of at once, right? Because when you realize how serious this is, 
you start getting a bit absorbed into it and you want to read as much as you can and learn as much as you can. And so I, I was listening to all of these kinds of people. But I found inspiration, strangely, from people who weren't vegan. You know, I, I, was, I was listening to the people who'd inspired me in other contexts and in their fights for liberty and, and making an offensive against totalitarianism and dictatorship and oppression and these kinds of things. And I thought, well, look, this actually, this applies quite well. I mean, um, in the talk I gave yesterday, I was referencing George Orwell, for instance, whose writings I was able to employ to use in, in this seemingly strange context. But when you, when you look at the principle of any liberal writer, I think you can find a lot of inspiration for stuff that would apply for animal rights to animal rights as well. So I think it was a it was a background of being inspired by people like Orwell, by people like Christopher Hitchens, by people who'd speak brilliantly about liberty in general. Put that together with the factual information and the and the new animal focus, animal central focus to ethics that I got from people like Peter Singer, and uh, that's how I ended up here as I am now. And when we look back on this system of, of animal agriculture that you're passionate about talking about, do you think we'll look back with confusion or disgust? I think both, certainly both. You can imagine a future generation that doesn't harm animals for food. And maybe they've got some archeologists and they're trying to figure out when it was that human beings gave up eating meat, right? Because we used to treat animals so callously, so horribly. Maybe one of the ways they find out is they do some digging and they find an old children's book that's full of happy farm animals with smiling faces and they've anthropomorphized them so they've got lovely faces and they're talking and they're some children's story or something. If an archaeologist were to dig this up, they'd look at that and think, oh, okay, we must have got this from a time after you know, people stopped abusing animals because there's just no way, obviously, if they're killing these animals in gas chambers, they're not going to be simultaneously putting them in a children's book. But that's exactly what we're doing. That, that's the thing, it's almost humorous. It's like when, when, we look, if, when a tragedy is so far in the past, a lot of the time it's, it's easier to look at the absurdity of the situation, right? When something's recent, it's more sensitive and you don't want to think about it so much. But when you think historically, you think how stupid some regimes of evil have been, how almost comically ridiculous and self-defeating and contradictory they've been. And I think that's how this movement will be seen as well, right? The, the, the most common thing I hear from people who I speak to about veganism is not even something like, oh, I think you're wrong about this, I think you're mistaken. It's like, you know what, I see what you're saying and I respect that you're vegan and that's great, but uh, I guess it's just, um, I, I guess it's just a, a flaw. I guess I'm just a, not a perfectly moral person or something like this. It's like, okay, that's fine, right? If you wanna say that, fine. But then you forfeit your right to criticize other people for participating in their injustices. Who are you to say, you shouldn't be doing this to your fellow creature, you shouldn't be doing this to me, when you're willing to say, I know that I'm participating in an industry of exploitation, but <laughs> I guess I just love cheese so much. It's, it's cute, but it's like, sometimes we just need to say, grow up, right? If you think that an appropriate response to talking about torture, torture of innocent beings, you think an appropriate response is to say bacon though, or to laugh it off with the reference that you just love cheese too much. I just don't think I can take you seriously as an ethical thinker. Mm. Yeah, we will literally look back with, with genuine confusion because here's the thing, the excuse that really gets me is, oh, we need to survive. And I think when we historically look back on that, we will be really confused because we're simultaneously also recognizing that the same system of animal agriculture is literally threatening and compromising our survival, whether it's uh, the CDC in America saying the next pandemic will come from H7N9, 
avian flu outbreak, whether it's antibiotic resistance, whatever it is, the system of animal agriculture, literally, I haven't even mentioned the environment, right? And we're yeah. seeing catastrophic environmental, you know, disasters around the world. And, and yet we're still saying like, you, I need meat to survive. And it makes these, no sense. All of these work on their own, right? So we've talked a little bit about the moral case here. You mentioned the environmental catastrophe that's befalling us if we're not careful. There's the problem of antibiotic resistance. There's a problem, as you mentioned, of future pandemics. There's also the problem of health, right? You've got all five, five of these, and there, there are more reasons, but there's five to get you started. Five wonderful reasons to at least abolish factory farming and probably go vegan, right? The moral case, the environmental case, antibiotic resistance, which will ruin us medically. It's the biggest fear in the medical community. And the majority of antibiotics are being, are being administered to farm animals. You've got the pandemic prevention. Governments are telling us that they're doing everything they can to make sure that something like this never happens again. You know, give me a break. Our governments are telling us to stay as far apart from each other as possible while simultaneously cramming tens of thousands of disease-ridden animals into these ignoble hell holes and then shipping them around the country and moving them internationally and stuff like this and then claiming that they're doing everything they can to stop pandemics. It's ridiculous. But any one of these arguments would work on their own. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense to me. If, like me, you're passionate about purchasing products from brands who choose considerate and sustainable business practices, you might want to hear about Newzest. They're the sponsor of this episode. The makers of plant-based nutrition products Newzest have a genuine care for the environment. That's why its products are made from sustainable European golden peas grown in clean, toxic-free environments in northern France. Peas are one of the most sustainable sources of plant-based proteins. They use less land and less water while putting nitrogen back into the soil. Newzest manufacturing also has a low carbon footprint. It uses no chemicals in its protein isolation process, purifies and recycles the water it uses, and it turns all waste into biofuel. Its canisters are also 100% recyclable. Find out more about Newzest and their eco-friendly supply chain at newzest.com forward slash PBN. The science is clear and has been communicated for the past 30 years, but still we're not moving in the right direction. I don't get depressed, I get angry. What are the systems that determine the state of the planet? This is about us. It is about our future. All is not well with our planet. As we increase our pressures on Earth, we are now crossing irreversible tipping points. I feel like in the last year or two, this, this narrative of, of veganism, this like attempt to try and get people to go vegan has become more compelling, of course, for reasons that you've just said, but more complicated in the way we talk about it. Like, I feel like vegans have historically separated out health and ethics for good reason, but we're seeing now, you know, what we're doing to animals, the cruelty involved is coming back to haunt us because, you know, last month there was a study that came out showing that if you eat a high protein, low carb, predominantly meat-based diet, that you know, increases your risk of fatal or severe, or at least moderate COVID-19 by over 50%. That's insane and shows us once again, what we're doing to animals really does come back to haunt us in mm. this situation with COVID-19, which was caused by eating animals in the first place. It's kind of getting confusing yes. in my head as I'm saying it, and they're all really interrelated in a confusing way. And I'm like, if I was having to write a university essay on this, I would be confused myself and I've been doing this for five years. Do you ever have this feeling? Yeah, it's a, it's a sick circus. The fact that the, one of the greatest contributors to the environmental problem that we're facing is our exploitation of animals. And then who are going to be the first victims of the environmental catastrophe? 
it's going to be non-human animals. It's sickening to think just how willing people are to put their most trivial interests over not just, like I used to think that maybe people wanted to keep eating meat because they're a bit selfish, right? This is what a lot of people say is that people, the only reason people continue to eat bacon and cheese is because they're selfish. They like the way it tastes and they don't care about other animals. That can't even be the case. It can't be that they're selfish because even when it's in their own best interest to stop eating these products, they still can't bring themselves to do it. And at that point, I think it's, it's perhaps worthy of the, the label of addiction, right? If you really can't give up a bacon sandwich in the morning, despite the fact that it's the single biggest threat to, you know, uh, well, it, it's one of the biggest contributors to perhaps the single biggest existential crisis we're currently facing as a species, also your own personal health. And like you, I come away quite bemused. And I think, how can we explain this? How can we explain the fact that so many people are participating in what seems to us to be an obvious wrong, not just an obvious evil upon animals, but an obvious uh, irrational thing to do as a, as a human species? And I think we just have to reflect on the fact that historically, while there's usually malice at the top um, of any industry of exploitation or oppression, all of these historical injustices are buttressed by ordinary people. Right? It's only when you look at it in retrospect and see it all together and you think, Gosh, did we really do that? And I think it's going to be the same thing for animal exploitation. For now, it's just a burger. But when this has concluded, as it will, because this is moving in the right direction and it's obvious which direction we're moving in ethically here, when this concludes too, I think we'll look back in the same way and finally people will begin to realise the tragedy that we're currently living through. Mm. I guess it creates a positive story and opportunity for business, right? the meat aisles becoming the protein aisle. And I truly believe, me and you, you know, we're, we're talking about change in terms of creating awareness first, and then people will change. But if we're real with what you've just said and with each other, it's probably gonna be driven by business and people will start buying these products from the protein aisle. And only after months and months of buying these clean meat products or plant-based meat products, which now, well, hopefully in the future will be built up from the molecular level to mimic the taste and texture of real meat, they'll buy those products for months and months and then perhaps realize, oh, we haven't eaten products from animal farming in months. Maybe what we're doing to animals in terms of putting 78 billion through factory farming each year, maybe we shouldn't have been doing that. But the key point I'm making is maybe behavioral change before awareness. I don't know what you think about it. There is some data about that, but not much. But, but do, you, do you give any credibility to the idea? Mm, I, think, I think you're right to say that the thing that will probably make people actually finally make the jump is the production of, of meat alternatives and things like this. If you can create lab-grown meat, this kind of stuff that really tastes the same. I have to unfortunately agree that that's probably what it's going to take before people really start getting on board with this en masse, but fine. If that's what it takes, okay, but I pity the people who have to explain to their grandchildren when they're asked, look, you lived in a time before we had lab-grown meat, but you knew that factory farming was a, was a thing. You knew that pigs were being killed in gas chambers and being mutilated and cows were being separated from their calves and bolt gunned in the head. You knew that this was happening, and you also knew that you had plant-based alternatives available to you granddad, so why were you still paying for this horrible abuse? And I wish I knew the answer to that question. It's something I continue to explore when I speak to people and debate people. It's not just a question of who's right about this, but a question of why isn't this as obvious to so many people as it is to us, right? To us who, who look at this very plainly and say, 
look, you, at the end of the day, you have a choice before you. You either pay for an animal to be tortured or you don't. Do you think speciesism is the first form of discrimination? Like, you know, when you look at the marketing, the meat and dairy industry marketing that kids are exposed to, dairy is given to kids in schools, in primary school and secondary school, everybody's taught that, you know, you need meat for protein and dairy for calcium. Like, is it fair to say that people, if they are taught to value all life as worth like living and worthy of respect, and people are taught to consume a vegan diet and buy into this idea of veganism that they're less prone to maybe discriminating people on things as equally irrelevant as like their gender or their skin colour. Like, what, what do you think about this? Because this is something that I've been thinking about in my head, but I'm still working my way through how to kind of articulate it in a way where I'm not worried that the mainstream of people, family members are going to just like belittle me and think I'm literally insane. Yeah, that's the common problem of the, uh, the the animal rights advocate is to not feel like you're constantly going insane and therefore not to sound like you're constantly going insane um, when things get a little frantic in arguments. To answer your questions in reverse, I mean, I certainly think that if you teach a child that you can't mistreat this animal even though it's a different species to you, they're never going to grow up to think they can mistreat another human being just because they have a different skin color. It's not, it's not a case of being equally arbitrary. It's, it's even more arbitrary, right? There's even less less of a distinction between races and genders and stuff like this than there is between species. If you can bridge that massive gap first, if you can say, listen, this being is, is utterly unlike you in, in basically every way you can see. It might have a different number of eyes, different number of legs, it might be a different color, it might have feathers, it might have all kinds of different things about it. But you can't mistreat it because it feels, right? There's just no way that if a child genuinely internalizes that, they're going to grow up to be a racist or a sexist. You, it, it's incompatible. I, I don't know if I would say that other forms of exploitation are exactly built upon it, but I do know that if we can fix this part, then everything else will follow nicely, right? So I, I, don't, I, I don't know if I think that, like, you know, uh, the human tendencies towards sexism and racism and stuff are, are, are like based on or logically come after speciesism as the fundamental prejudice. But I do think that in terms of fixing prejudice in the world, if we can fix speciesism, everything else will, will flow naturally. And it, it will take you know, generational change. Um, because you could be someone who takes pity on non-human animals in gas chambers, but doesn't take pity on the plight of ethnic minorities. It's, it's possible for someone to do that. And I know plenty of people do do that. But that's probably a result of having already internalized certain prejudices in terms of racism, sexism, this kind of thing. And then they're introduced to animal rights and it becomes the only thing they focus on. But if we are from, from the very first teaching children that it's not okay to abuse another creature, despite them looking totally different from you, then I think we will solve all of those problems all at once. Surely, you might argue, it's ridiculous to try to draw such an equality between humans and animals. There are quite easily detectable differences, both physically and cognitively, between them. So let's take a look at this claim. Firstly, it pays to remember that we are animals, not a distinct form of being. But secondly, and here's the more important point, I might just as easily say something like it's foolish to draw an equality between black people and white people because there are clearly identifiable physical and cultural differences between them. But this would completely miss the point. We don't condemn racism because all races are equal. 
they're not. They look different, they have different proportions, skin colours and eye shapes and different cultures and different histories, different religions, different biology and some data even suggests different IQ averages. But the whole point of racial justice is not to deny these differences, but to point out that these differences are completely irrelevant to determining whether or not someone deserves life and freedom. It's not about saying that there are no differences between us, but that despite our differences, we all have an equal moral worth. The same applies to differences in gender and social class, and arguably, species. In other words, to answer the claim that it's ridiculous to see animals and humans as equals, you don't have to in order to recognise that they both have moral worth. But you don't even have to think that human beings and non-human animals do have an equal moral worth in order to justify veganism. There are many ways in which we might determine a human being to have more moral worth than a non-human animal. For instance, human beings have an awareness of the future that most animals lack. If we were killing humans for food, it would just cause pandemonium amongst all of us, but this wouldn't happen with, say, chickens who don't know what's going to happen to them. Now this is a relevant difference in the sense that if we have to have an industry that converts living beings into meat, it makes far more moral sense to do this to chickens than to humans because of this difference. This presupposes that we do need such an industry at all, which is simply not the case. It might be more moral to kill chickens for food than to kill humans for food, but that doesn't make it actually moral to do either of these. It's more moral to just murder someone than to rape and murder them, but neither of these is moral. So even if we do see animals as having less moral worth than humans, this doesn't justify us treating them as though they have no moral worth at all. Last question, because I really appreciate your, your time. I'm going to tee it up for you because it's quite a low-level question, but probably kind of like common question people that meat-eaters probably think. If human beings are anatomically, physiologically required animal protein or animal products for their health, for survival, would that make any of your moral arguments less watertight? No. No, I don't think so. Because my argument is essentially a conditional one. If we can avoid inflicting torturous suffering upon an animal, then we should do so. Now, there may be a situation in which you genuinely can't avoid it. It's a life or death situation. But I'll tell you one thing is that I don't think, even if you are in a situation where you need to eat meat to survive, I doubt that you'll be in a situation where you really need to eat factory farmed meat to survive. My argument is not so much against animal death as it is against animal suffering. I want to see this come to an end. If somebody genuinely needs to eat meat to survive, if it, if it became true, if, if we had some grand reversal of all the scientific evidence that we have that showed that actually, yeah, we do need animal proteins. Well, consider that when someone says we need meat to be, to be healthy, right, the vegan response is never to say like, yeah, but like, come on, think of the animals. The, the vegan response is to say, no, that's not, that's not true, right? Like, uh, you can be healthy on a vegan diet. The corollary of this, if, if you're making this argument saying you have an obligation to go vegan because it's perfectly healthy to do so, the corollary of this is that were it not perfectly healthy to do so, you wouldn't have that obligation. And I think that's true. I don't think you can hold somebody under an obligation to do something that threatens their health and well-being um, to such an extent. However, 
as I say, it's just it's a conditional point, right? It, it's clear that we don't need this stuff to survive. And if you're in a situation where you do need to eat meat to survive, you still need to eat as little as you can, right, as an, as an ethical imperative. Like, sure, maybe if you needed to eat some meat or, or like an egg every two days or something to survive, for whatever reason, whatever situation you're in, then fine, do that. But don't use that as an, as an excuse to eat any more, right? Remember the definition of veganism, the minimization to the highest extent practicable of all forms of animal suffering. Keywords are practicable and minimization. Nobody should be under the illusion that vegans aren't responsible for killing animals. Of course we are, everybody is. When I go and buy plant-based food, I've destroyed habitats and, and pesticides were used in crop production, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, like animals die in the production of vegan food. That's why no vegan is gonna say that this is about eliminating animal suffering. It's about minimizing it to the highest extent that you can. And so not only, if you're in a situation where you need to eat this stuff to survive, not only do I think you can break your veganism and you know eat those animals, I think you can eat those animals and still call yourself a vegan. Because yeah, sure, you're responsible for some animal death, but so am I. As long as you're contributing uh, the least amount that you practically can to animal suffering, I think you can call yourself a vegan. Thanks again to Newsest who kindly sponsored this episode. If you're on the hunt for a pea protein to boost your daily protein intake or to optimize your health, I'd definitely recommend checking out their products. Have a browse at newsest.com and don't forget to use the discount code PBN20 to get 20% off.